0: Welcome to Hear Me Out, I'm Celeste Headley. Look, if you're listening to this show, you can probably agree with the basic idea that racism is bad. It's not exactly an unpopular opinion. We know that racism, both systemic and personal, is responsible for a lot of problems in society, and has been for a long time. We hear a lot about being anti-racist and addressing our internal biases and making sure all of our spaces are diverse, intersectional, inclusive. None of this is news to you, I'm sure. But what if someone told you that actually a little bit of racism deployed in the right way can be a good thing?
1: I think I'm just putting a name to a thing that we already do. And I think the idea that we have to be this perpetual melting pot is overcorrection.
0: Writer Damon Young joins us to make the case for racism light in just a moment. Stay with us.
2: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? The Negro still is
1: not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled.
0: You may have been taught that Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech was a call to end racial divides. But listen closer. It's not. The idea that Dr. King was calling for a color-doesn't-matter, I-don't-see-color type of society is a common misperception. And I guess it's an understandable one if you get caught up in that, not by the color of their skin, but the content of their character part of the speech. The I Have a Dream speech ends, though, with the following statement. When we allow freedom to ring, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last.
1: Thank God Almighty, we are free at last.
0: Dr. King was recognizing the differences between people and wasn't calling for us to erase racial identities or religious identities. He just wanted us to erase injustice. So the existence of different races wasn't really the problem, at least in Dr. King's eyes. After all, although it's often used to discriminate against groups of people, racial identity can also be a source of community and support, belonging. If racial divides create community, then can some racism, dare we say it, be good. When we asked writer Damon Young to bring us a spicy opinion, he told us to consider the notion that a little racism is or can be a good thing. And look, there is a lot to unpack here. So here's our conversation. And just a heads up, it does contain explicit language.
1: Racism isn't always bad. In in, in fact, a little bit of racism, like pocket racism, petite racism, is in fact good.
0: Okay, so you have two separate opinions here, and I think we should get into them separately. So let's start with the fact that you think racism isn't always bad.
1: Well, I consider it. I consider it to be the same thing that like the the racism not being always not not always being bad and a pocket racism being good, like because. I feel like a fool just trying to articulate this out loud, but I'm going to say it anyway. There's the racism with the capital R, which is when people try to restrict rights, when people, um, you know, enact policies to consider someone, you know, based off the, based off the opinion that people, that certain people are, are unequal. When you subjugate, when you, when you pass, like, you know, social and cultural and even environmental, you know, economic laws to prevent uh, and restrict movement when you incarcerate another group at higher levels, you know. Um so that is bad.
0: Yeah, yeah. All that right? nasty racism that is that bad. makes black yeah, and brown people more that's likely terrible. to die at the hands of police, less likely to get medical treatment, all mm-hmm. that stuff. That's unequivocally bad.
1: Yeah. So fuck that racism. And so what I'm talking about, um, and I guess the best way to really provide a context for what I for what I mean is to Rewind to the 1970s NBA. So the NBA at that point was undergoing a pretty severe public relations issue, where um, and this and this is racism with a capital R, where the, the media was calling the league too black, you know, calling the players too drug addicted, too coked out, lazy, didn't care about the game, et cetera, et cetera. Some of the you know, and you actually see some of the same criticisms, you know, about black athletes today. Right. And so 1979, I want to say I might be wrong, but this year, there emerges a star player from Indiana State University. I remember my dad talking about, you know, when he was, you know, my dad was like in his 20s then and my dad played basketball. I played basketball, too, and would hear about this kid named Larry Bird. Larry Bird has 39 points. Larry Bird. 47 points, 16 rebounds, 11 assists, and the state wins. And, you know, you're just seeing these headlines, headlines, headlines. And you don't, but there's no sports center. And it's rare that game tracks you on TV. So you have no idea what Larry Bird looks like. And so my dad and many other people just presumed that he was black because, again, a ball player named Larry Bird. Yeah, okay, this is definitely a brother. And then, you know, at Michigan State University, there's a player who emerges, you know, doesn't quite have the same sort of statistics that Larry Bird has, but has the same impact on the game where his team keeps winning. He plays with a joy that is just uncommon at this point. And his name is Urban Magic Johnson. They face each other in a national championship game and then they both go to the NBA. Magic goes to the Lakers, Larry Bird with the Celtics. And immediately, you know, the Lakers were already a powerhouse. The Celtics were already, you know, already had the history you know, the Lakers already had Kareem, but they just drive a, a different level of interest into the game and into the sport. And then for the entire 80s, it's Magic's Lakers versus Bird Celtics. And I was alive, a present fan in the NBA during the second half of the 80s. And I remember all the black kids, all the black people <laughs> gravitated towards Lakers And all of the white people gravitated towards the Celtics.
0: Yeah, that was an accurate depiction of my childhood as well.
1: Yeah, and and it's not like the Celtics were all, you know, white team. They had Robert Parrish, they had Dennis Johnson, they had, you know, uh, black players coming off the bench, and the Lakers weren't all black either. In fact, the Lakers had a white coach and the Celtics had a black coach. You know, Celtics had Casey Jones, Lakers had Pat Riley, at least, you know, in the late 80s. But that rivalry... You know, help springboard the NBA into this into the multi-billion-dollar worldwide cultural force that it is today, and that does not happen without Magic and Bird, and also without the fact that this this you know this this contrast of styles, you know, East Coast versus West Coast.
0: Okay, since you're talking about sports, uh, to demonstrate that a little bit of racism is good. It sounds to me like you're saying that fans lining up to support the player that shared their racial demographic was a good thing. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yes. That's uh, that's exactly what I'm saying.
0: But couldn't that also happen when people choose any champion in sports? Or if it's, you know, um, two white boxers or two black boxers that people line up behind? Why do they have to be from different races?
1: Well, I think that it being behind different races. Just, you know, it provides like, it, it provides an interest in a casual fan. It also... You have this dynamic where you have the contrast, right? And you had the contrasting styles. You also had L- it, it also mattered that it was LA, which is LA versus Boston, right? This wasn't LA versus San Diego or Boston versus Philadelphia, which was its own rivalry at that time, Boston and Philly, but LA versus Boston was a thing. And so you had DC stark contrast, and it was like, okay, which side are you on? And an appreciator of, of basketball just, You know, like I was at a time, I just love watching great basketball being played. I gravitated towards the Lakers because, you know, I'm black and Magic was black and James Worthy was black and Kareem was black. But I just loved, I love watching the Celtics play too. I didn't love the Celtics, but I love watching Larry Bird play basketball. And again, I think that, you know, sometimes people call this tribalism, right? Which is, to me, it's another way of saying racism. (laughs) Okay, it's a very... Very polite way of saying that, and again, I just don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing if people, you know, root for if they see somebody on TV. They and, and again, you're watching these players on TV, you're watching these athletes on TV, and you have no allegiance. you have no connection to them whatsoever. So it's like, okay, well, I see the white guy, I see the black guy. I'm black. I'm gonna just root for the black guy, you know, and I don't and I don't think that's a problem. And again, in the NBA's context, that dynamic definitely, definitely, definitely springboarded the NBA from the struggling league in the seventies to again this global force by the nineties. And obviously Michael Jordan, you know, emerges too from that. But, you know, Jordan Jordan doesn't have the platform that he has without Magic and Bird.
0: I definitely have more questions for you, Damon. We're going to take a quick break. We're talking with Damon Young here on Hearing Out. I'm Celeste Headley, and we will be right back.
2: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VDW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
0: This is Hear Me Out, a podcast from Slate, and I'm talking to Damon Young, who brings an opinion today that is... Controversial feels like not significant enough. Your view is that a little tiny bit of racism, racism light, can be helpful. Now, you gave us a sports analogy before, but let's bring this to, say, the workplace or your neighborhood. We know scientifically that humans want to separate ourselves into groups. We are ready to separate ourselves into blondes and brunettes, people in blue shirts versus people in green shirts. So because skin color and racial characteristics have been so destructive... Should we try to find another kind of tribalism <laughs> that might be less toxic?
1: I mean, but we do, though. I mean, we we, we already kind of curate ourselves based off of income, based off of uh, interests, based off of gender, based off of religious practice, based off of um, whether or not, you know, you're a dog who has children. So there are all these ways that we're already, you know, segregating ourselves socially in a way. And again, I'm just putting a name to a thing that I think that most of us already do. Like, you know, when Friends was popular um, back in the 90s and um, there was, you know, it it, it had the criticism back then. Like, how come there are no black people on Friends? How come, you know, this is not a, this is not like a accurate depiction of New York City. And I, I always felt like, you know what, that actually is extremely very accurate because it's very easy to create like a monoromatic <laughs> friend group i've done it in pittsburgh pittsburgh is 22 percent black and I've, I've done it here right and so i think it would be it's less realistic if you have like the one black friend shoehorned in you know what i mean um and and the criticism that sort of criticism was always misguided to me, because you know, it's focusing on the, the lowercase r racism. When a capital R racism is not why aren't there black people on Friends? It's why aren't black creatives given those same opportunities to, to create a Friends type show? You know, that's that's where the issue is, right? But in terms of creating this world, that is that is starkly, you know, um, conspicuously white. Again, I don't think there's a problem with that at all because that just reflects reality. I mean, yes, there are people who exist in the world, who exist in America, who have, you know, the United Nations in their in, in their most recent, you know, text, um, you know, text messages or whatever, and that's fine. Um, I think that is more the exception than the rule, though. And again, I, I think that as long as you Aren't saying, okay, these people are bad or these people are less than, and I want to keep them away. And when it becomes that capital R racism, then that's that's when it becomes like problematic, that's when it becomes hurtful, that's when it becomes destructive. But the capital but the lowercase R, where you just naturally gravitate towards people that you might have a shared history with or a shared relationship with America with, again, I just I just don't think that's a bad thing. And again, I think that most of us already do that.
0: I mean, I don't disagree with you. Decades of research show that most white people in the United States do not have even a single non-white friend. And there's more research that says that when a white person says they have a black friend, the standards are different. They wouldn't consider that person a friend if they were white.
1: Just really quickly, I'm going through my text, my text messages right now, and I'm looking at, you know, the the last... Fifty text messages that I've seen. I have to go down eighteen people before I get to a white person. And it and it's um my <laughs> yeah, and it's my old editor at the Washington Post. I
0: never thought <laughs> I would say this to you, Damon Young, especially based on your writing. But you seem to be more optimistic than I am. I don't think we can separate ourselves out on racial lines and not be awful about it. Shouldn't we all want to be anti-racist?
1: I think that you know most. Black people in America live in predominantly black neighborhoods. You know, have predominantly black friend groups. It's just most. You know, not all, but but most. And and I would imagine that most of these black people have no problem navigating the predominantly white world of America, even, even despite you know the self segregation of our friend groups and our churches and. Our our, our, our romantic relationships etc and so I, I again I don't think that's a problem of 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 separation or of segregation in that manner i think that what you're speaking of is a problem that you know to be frank that white people have i, I see your point because it this is walking on a tightrope um you know trying to trying to I guess distinguish between, you know, the good racism and the bad racism, right? Because people take it too far. But I, I again I, I think I'm just putting a, a name to a thing that we already do. And and I and I think the idea that, you know, that we have to be like this perpetual melting pot is a overcorrection. Right? It's a forced shoehorning overcorrection of you know, what America is and what America has been like. and i do I do believe that there is that there's a possibility of finding that sweet spot because black people have done it.
0: Do you really think that black people would mostly live around other black people and Latinos would mostly live around other Latinos if segregation hadn't been enforced through racist laws? I'm thinking of redlining and all the other stuff that kept black and brown people out of some of the more, quote unquote, elite neighborhoods.
1: Yeah, I think that that would happen. I think that that would still, maybe not on the same, on the same levels, because, yeah, again, that has to be considered The capital R racism, you know, created the dynamic where black people, oh, you, you have to live together. You don't have a choice. You have to live in the same, you know, the same neighborhood. You have to live in the same area. Um, But we see it today, though, um, where, you know, black person maybe gets some money, gets some whatever, you know, um, and are able to live in, you know, wherever they want to live. And, you know, you see a lot of us moving to DC or moving to Baltimore, moving to Charlotte or moving to, you know, to to Atlanta, you know, places where there are more of us, right? Like you're just not seeing the black person who gets money and decides to move to Montana. It's like, you know what? I, I, I got this freedom. I can live wherever I want. Let me go. Let me go out to the big sky. I
0: mean, they're not going to have the food I want or exactly. the music. Exactly.
1: Who's going to do my hair? Oh
0: God, the hair.
1: Where am I going to get my hair cut out there? Who am I going to date if I'm in, if you're a black person who's interested primarily, exclusively in dating other black people? Um, so, so again, I just, I just again, this is a thing that we do already, right? And again, the the bad part is the bad part. The, the capital R racism is the bad part, but the lowercase R, the, the you could call it tribalism or whatever you want to call it, I don't think is a bad thing. I mean, I think we saw another example of this, of the distinction between it, with the the women's um, national championship basketball game, where, you know, people who had never really been into women's basketball, women's college basketball, were paying attention to a sport, and you had this, you know, this tremendous player, Caitlin Clark from Iowa. And the team was predominantly white. I think they maybe had one or two black girls on the team. And again, that that happens when you have, you know, just like with Indiana State and Larry Bird back in the day, you have a you have a player like Kate, like Caitlin Clark. Who it, it matters that she is a is a white girl, white woman. I'm sorry, from a predominantly white team, who was domi- dominated a sport that is. You know, you know I, I know the demographics for women's basketball are are a bit different than men's. I know men's is predominantly black. I think women's ball might be closer to 50-50. I don't have those numbers in front of me. But still, just to see her out there doing this over and over again generated an interest, right? And, and again, what you mentioned— with the reactions to um, Angel Reese's um, taunting, that's that capital R. Reese is coming to bite us again. You know, where people could have just kept it at, you know, I was rooting for LSU. Y'all rooted for LSU because they were the black girls and we rooted for Iowa because they were the white girls. LSU won, that's great. Shaked our hands, let's see them again next year, right? Like, I, if you stop at that level, then it's not a problem. But, you know, they didn't stop at that level a took it further.
0: We're going to take another short break, and we'll be back to wrap this up with Damon Young. This is Hear Me Out, a podcast from Slate. We'll be right back. And we're back. I'm Celeste Headley, and this is Hear Me Out. We're currently hearing out Damon Young. So, Damon, let me get one last take from you on this idea that racism light can be desirable. We focused quite a bit on sports, and you gave me an example in the office. Let's pull that string a little. If we separate out into teams in the workplace, that means choosing people to work with who look the same as you. Can that ever be okay?
1: Well, I think, again, that's where the capital R racism seeps in, where if you're a person who has actual hiring power, right, and you have the power to to, to give someone to you know increase someone's salary or you have the power to fire somebody, then no, it, it should be, you know, best person for the job or whatever. But I'm saying, like, once you're at this office, right, and, you know, the the, the the black people in the office, you know, have a get-together, have a happy hour, I don't see a problem at all with wanting to, you know. And, and this is something that even stand-up comedians joke about, where if you walk into a predominantly white, you know, office setting and you're unfamiliar with the environment and you see another black person, it becomes like a thing, like, holy shit, okay, I'm seeing, I see somebody, finally, cool. And then you talk to, you You, you hopefully become friends with that person. You're like, you know, we're, what, what do we do after work? You know, what should I do? What should I know about this company? You know, you're not, this isn't a thing where you seek out, like, a, a another white person to do that, even if you have white coworkers, right? It's the, okay, There's a, there's another brother here, He might know the ins and outs. He might know some of the things that are not, you know, in the welcome pamphlet, in a welcome packet, things that HR isn't going to tell me. So I need to talk to him. I need to talk to her to get the real load down on what's happening, right? And so, again, I think that when you, obviously, when you, you know, use, you know, race to dictate who's working there, that that's not a good thing, but. If you're in the same environment, right, and you use race to dictate, okay, who are my, who are who are going to be the people that I that I lean on, who are going to be the who are going to be my my allies in the space, you know, and and using race as like a as a primary indicator of that, you know, because again, it I say primary indicator because it's not always true, you know, there there are those circumstances where you see that other black person in the space and they they look at you funny. <laughs> they are like, who are you? You know what I mean? They're 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 the person who, instead of opening the door behind them, wants to shut it close. You know what I mean? And and so you know, skin folk and always skin folk. But again, that is the first. That's like the first thing that you look for. Not a bad thing to me.
0: Look, I said at the beginning there was a lot to unpack here, and there is a lot. It sounded to me through our conversation that Damon is still sort of working through this hypothesis, trying to understand how sometimes being part of a racial identity can make you feel welcomed and warm and accepted. It can make you feel as though you belong to something important at the same time that sometimes it's used to discriminate against people. So how do you separate the good part of racial identities and communities away from the bad part that seems to come along with it? This is a controversial idea, and it's also one that gives me at least a lot of thought. I went into this conversation thinking I was going to say, absolutely not. In no cases could you be correct. And as so often on this show, I find myself thinking, well, I, I gotta give this some more consideration. But I do wanna know what you think about it because look, we know you have an opinion on this and we want you to email us. It's slate.com. We have been getting a lot of emails from listeners and we're so grateful, keep them coming. We want to share this note we received from a listener named Michael. We had Lucian Truscott on to make a case against reflexively thanking veterans for their service. So Michael wrote this in response. I just listened to your latest episode and couldn't agree more. I am a veteran and West Point graduate, much like your latest guest. I absolutely can't stand being told thank you for your service, mostly because I never deployed. Or really feel like I did anything other than show up to my job while I was in the army. I know most people don't know my personal experience and are just trying to be polite, but it does feel cheap. When I hear thank you for your service, part of me can't help thinking about Vanessa Guillen and other soldiers, sailors, marines, and airmen who've been murdered in the United States while doing a job that promised them a ladder to climb out of poverty. I'm not sure what the replacement is, but maybe the country should provide kids a safer way to change their lives. Thank you, Michael. It's a really thoughtful and insightful response, and we get lots of these from y'all, so please keep them coming. Our email address is slate.com. Hear Me Out is a podcast from Slate The show is produced by Maura Curry. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations. And Alicia Montgomery is VP of Slate Audio. I'm your host, Celeste Headley. Until next time, speak your mind, but keep it open.
1: Step into the world of power, loyalty,